0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. You sound like my zero-period students at Sunny Hills High School. Arrgh. No, it's fine. It's fine. Don't, don't feel like that's pressure to say hi to me. It's, it's fine. It's, the rules are unclear when someone says hi from the pulpit, right? That's right. So there we go. It's, it's about me, not you. Um, all right. Uh, please turn to the book of Mark, uh, in which we've been uh, studying the life of Jesus and turn to chapter 15, and starting at verse 33. Mark 15 and 30, uh, verse 33, follow along as I read. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And on the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on him from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to be in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and truth as uh, we study it together. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So at the Grace Men's Retreat about a month ago, I sat next to Mike Wise, who's uh, on the leadership committee of Project Hope, and he said, hey, I, I heard you're going to be preaching at Defending the Fatherless Sunday. And I uh, thought, wow, I didn't know that. And um, I was immediately kind of freaking out because, uh, well, first of all, it's an important Sunday. Um, And then secondly, I knew that the passage that uh, I was going to be preaching on was this one where Jesus says, my God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? And it just seemed problematic. I mean, uh, the, the, the contrast between orphan care and Jesus in a way and for a time being orphaned uh, in my mind just seemed pretty dissonant. And so I certainly want to address uh, why Jesus had to be forsaken in this sermon. It's an important question. Why did he have to be forsaken And and then in this way. And so Mark, uh, even though it is a sparse passage, Mark gives us uh, a lot to think about and I believe points us towards the answer to that question. Each picture has a focal point, that place that draws the interest and attention of the viewer, that place that attracts the eye. Uh, Today, In Mark, we look at the picture that is the very focal point of Christianity. It's the very focal point, we believe, of history, in fact. And it's odd because human history, you wouldn't think, would meet here. In the vast linear path of time past all the way to time future, here, on a hill outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Suspended between heaven and earth is the crux of all human fortune. We see on a cross here a Galilean rabbi, a teacher, suffering a humiliating death, utterly alone. And this teacher is God incarnate, the Son of God, and he's dying. Let's take a moment to defamiliarize ourselves from this image of a cross, this very Christian image. How many thousands of times in your life have you seen a cross? How many scores of times have you meditated on this beautiful cross behind me? The images you've seen in art and in film, adorned on jewelry, bookmarks, your Bibles, Some might even have crosses ornamenting your home. It's such a familiar image, and it should be, because Christianity, our faith simply wouldn't exist if Jesus had not died the way he did. Now think of a cross again, but think of it under the cover of deep shadow, only observable when the occasional torch passes by. It's very dark, and you can hardly make out the shadows of the crosses 50 yards from you. You occasionally hear one of the men gasping for air, and you're scared. For it's not late at night. In fact, it's the middle of the day, and it's the rainy season, so this isn't a dust storm, and the calendar tells us there was no eclipse. It is as if the very light of the world has turned away from the earth. It's a macabre scene of torture and death, made even more strange for its darkness. Of all the worldviews, Christianity is the only worldview whose darkest hour is also the central hour, the focal point. It's the only worldview where our whole existence depends on the death of its founder. I mean, to to some degree, every religion has to be dependent on the birth of its founder, but the death of its founder. It's a death that we're commanded to reenact in baptism. We're commanded to eat and drink in the Lord's Supper. And it's on this Sunday, Defending the Fatherless Sunday, it's a death that shows God's uh, and Jesus's great love for the world. A love so great that their eternal and abiding relationship would, for a time, be severed. Where Jesus would voluntarily feel the full weight of rejection and even wrath. So today, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, we look at the deepest core of our faith and our belief. But to look through Mark's eyes, we have to look through this scene in darkness, So if you're taking notes, you'll see that I've provided a simple outline, Forsaken in the Darkness and Hope in the Darkness. So let's look at the first point, Forsaken in the Darkness. The sixth hour is around noon, uh, uh, close to right now, really. The ninth hour then would be 3 p.m. And so this darkness is not natural. The passage gives us no sense that this moment is merely some sort of overcast moment. As the darkness seems to envelop the whole land. In the Bible, this kind of darkness is virtually synonymous with God's judgment and wrath. Uh, a couple of passages we see uh, the prophets. First Samuel two nine and ten. I'll read it. Uh, it. Says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked he sh- shall be cut off in darkness. Jeremiah twenty three. Both prophet and priest are ungodly, even in my house, for I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall, for I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Revelation 16, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. This darkness is a supernatural darkness. If the heavens and earth declare God's glory, this moment must too. But the heavens are blotted out, and the earth is Golgotha, a wasteland. And Jesus, God incarnate, is a dim, suffering shadow. Now, I'm an English teacher, so I I tend to take an English teacher approach to just thinking. And there's a literary um, technique called the pathetic fallacy. And authors in fiction use this to create... um, a sense of atmosphere and to tell us what uh, characters think. The pathetic fallacy is this. I'm going to create an atmosphere where the natural world and the weather mimic something that's going on for a character or something a character thinks. And this happens in a lot of great literature. Well, God is the author of all things. He's the creator. And My wife pointed out to me last week that uh, he is the creator of nature too. And he, like an author, can use The atmosphere around us to communicate what he thinks. And this is historical narrative. This happened at a relatively, this was written at a relatively close time to Jesus's death. This is not fiction. I want to be clear about that. But God uses imagery to communicate to us about him. And the darkness shows his wrath and judgment. Now, these are two characteristics of God that we don't like to talk about that much. Um, they seem in some ways opposed to our culture. Uh, you know, you'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who enters your house and sees on the wall some, uh, something that says faith, hope, and love, uh, and, and, and that that person would bristle at that, right? But imagine if it said faith, hope, and love, judgment, and wrath, <laughs> right? You wouldn't see that. Um, in, in someone's entryway. Mm. Now, I started thinking, is this just us? Is Are we just kind of squeamish about talking about God's judgment and wrath, or is it everyone? So I went to anyone, the place where anyone who does good research would go. I went to Google, okay? And, and Google has this uh, feature called the n-gram reader where basically you can uh, plug some words into a search engine and trace their uh, historical frequency across a timeline. So uh, I went through and I just took faith, hope, and love, judgment, and wrath and and saw how popular have these words been in the uh, last uh, 200 years relative to each other. So the first one, love, and all you really need to see is the line. This is uh, how often in uh, all the texts that Google has digitized over the last 200 years we've seen the word love. And you can see, you know, it hit a bit of a low point in 1940. but. You know, the nineteen recovered strongly in the nineteen eighties, right? Um, I- interesting. Okay, next. Uh, this one's hope. Okay. Modernism set in, and then you know. There we go. Uh, next, uh, faith. Similar tracking hope, and then finally, I put wrath and judgment there on the bottom. OK, so obviously uh, we can conclude several things. But the, the point that this illustrates is that these have never been popular terms. OK, uh, there they all are. They, the, relative to the other three, the characteristics of God, that God is a God of judgment and God of wrath are things we don't like to talk about. But I would submit to you the, the cross is, is pretty nonsensical apart of, from those things. If you don't have those things um, there's there's some problems at the cross. So I want to talk about these things. I want to talk about uh, God being, uh, Jesus being forsaken in the darkness. And, and, and an understanding of God's wrath and judgment are really important here. Christ on the cross is suffering under the judgment of God on our behalf. The very firmament has turned dark and apocalyptic God's judgment and wrath have fallen. And the darkness testifies to this. It might not sit well with us, especially on a time when defending the fatherless Sunday would, would, would focus us on God's compassion and mercy towards others. God's love for those who seem to have been discarded and the church coming around them. Jesus gives us these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't merely suffering physically in the darkness. He is forsaken. Forsaken is an archaic sounding word. Chances are you haven't used that in casual conversation in quite some time. Um, If we had to pick a modern equivalent for that word, we might say rejection. And we've all experienced that. I have no doubt. Um, I think of moments, several moments of rejection in my life, but I think of my eighth, ninth grade experience in athletics, right? It was one rejection after another, not making the list. Um, But it's pretty normal, right? You you don't get the job you'd applied for. You don't get into the school that you would applied for. Um, You don't get the grant that you were hoping for. Uh, Rejection is uh, part and parcel of so much of life. It's not easy, but it's fairly normal. But then there are relational rejections, too, and those seem to hurt more, right? Uh, being excluded from the group, being the loser, uh, being interested in someone romantically and receiving some version of let's just be friends is very, very painful experience for a lot of people. Um, even, you know, the day-by-day rejections that you might have um, from even people you, you love closely feeling rejected— But forsakenness, that's not even just rejection. Okay, forsakenness is abandonment. I mean, think of the most intimate relationship in which you have been known and loved. Think of the security that relationship brings you. Think of how the rest of the world can be falling apart, but that that relationship, that strong bond, can bring you through. And you feel like, no matter what happens, I'm okay because that is intact. That could be a relationship with a parent, or a sibling, or a spouse, or a friend. could be a relationship with the Lord. Now, whatever relationship you're thinking of, to whatever degree you would get comfort and security from that, go ahead and explode that feeling into an infinity, because that's the relationship that God and Jesus have enjoyed. A perfect bond of love and unity that has always existed. So in the darkness on the cross, Jesus suspended between heaven and earth, where man rejected him, and the heavens where God has abandoned him. This is a forsakenness that Uh, even through our imagination, we probably couldn't uh, even come close to understanding. In recent weeks, we have seen uh, this story unfold that comes to this point of separation from God. And this wrath and judgment point to another unpopular thing to talk about, and that is sin. Now, sin may be a term you have used in the last couple of weeks in casual conversation because we don't really have a good modern equivalent for sin, do we? In this story, we've seen lots of sin in the last few chapters. It's very easy to see unbelief and pride and narcissism and lies and abusive brutality and mockery and profanity, abuse of power, cowardice, injustice, the list goes on. And we see it in these chapters as ugly and wretched. When given the narrative account of the most unjust event in history, a sinless man who's a healer and a teacher and a deliverer, someone who holds the kingdom of heaven in his hands, who can forgive sins, who can cast out demons. When we see him sinned against, we think, yeah, that's obvious. That is obvious. That is sin. And Jesus dying for sin uh, makes a little bit more sense when we think of sin there. Even in today's passage, we can see sin. Jesus calls out, Eloi, Eloi. In his pain and anguish, onlookers might have heard, Elijah, Elijah. And for lack of a better term, Elijah was kind of like a patron patron saint of, of saving people in distress. And so the crowd very likely is taunting him here. Um, They're daring him to call down Elijah. Even the offer of vinegary wine, more likely than not, that was soldiers' wine, and we don't know exactly who offered it to him, but uh, more likely than not, that was to revive him enough that he would increasingly feel more pain, um, come out of the delirium that he seems to be experiencing. So the taunting and the sadism persists, and these are graphic pictures of human cruelty, human sin. There's a problem. There's a very human problem here. And that's that we look at sin and then we compartmentalize it. Uh, This sin uh, is very hard to relate to. It's ugly. And so long as we can set ourselves above that level of sin, we justify it. and, And we say that we're not that bad. I mean, look at the scoffers at the cross. Do you think any of them thought they were sinning against God? Probably not. In fact, I have no doubt that they were convinced of their spiritual, moral, or cultural superiority. And that's why Jesus was there being made a public spectacle of. Justifying themselves. You see, sin places us in another kind of darkness. And it has a way of blinding us apart from God's intervention. In fact, if you look at the whole history of God's engaging with humanity, it is a history of God letting us know what sin is and then doing something to try to provide a way for us to have relationship with a holy God uh, in the sinful world. You know, God established His law so that we can know what sin was. His sacrificial system is uh, so that we can know the consequence of sin, death, and through death, have some reconciliation. This is by God's grace. It's God's grace to us that he's even told us what sin is because we're so dark to it ourselves. And God's people, uh, he would raise up leaders and, and, and they would twist and adulterate and obscure sin. We see that in Jesus' own ministry. He, he's mad about people who add to his law. And the shepherds that God installs, kings, they're sinners too, and they lead their people astray. And eventually, God, through one of his prophets, says, I myself will be their shepherd. God says, I'm going to come in and be their shepherds. I can't, the people I'm installing can't do it. And we know in John that he came to his own. He did come incarnate. He's the light that shines in the darkness. Jesus' ministry centered on the recognition of sin. Consider the first words that Jesus tells us in his ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. The first word Jesus gives us is repent. Repent. recognize sin and turn away from it. He could have simply said, believe in the gospel. Probably for most people, we'd, we could get behind that. But repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the truth of Jesus' teachings teaching, taken at face value is that we are that bad. We are all sinners. Jesus' own teaching, his new teachings... Where he clarifies the purpose of the law, he says, Hey, your lust, that's adultery. Hating your brother, that's murdering your brother. And so, by a measure of degree, uh, sin uh, certainly, uh, our sin might not look as bad, but it has the same result death. Jesus distilled the whole law down to this, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what did they do? They crucified both God and neighbor. Jesus was God. Jesus was their neighbor. You might be thinking, wow, Christianity is really pessimistic about human nature. You're right. We're pessimistic about human nature. We're optimistic about God's nature, though, and that's good because God redeems our nature. God forsook Jesus because Jesus uh, willingly bore our sin. He took on our sin to be the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. In bearing our sin to take our sin, he had to be forsaken Separated, and this points to God's own holiness. God by nature cannot uh, dwell with that which is unholy. The clean cannot dwell with that which is unclean. Jesus had to be alone to take on the sin of the world to participate uh, in our suffering. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Uh, this. Accusation or this claim levied against the cross—that people would say uh, this is some sort of divine child abuse. Um, I've actually never actually had an argument with someone who said that, but I've I've heard that that's something that people might say. I think we owe them an explanation, and really a correct understanding of God's holiness and our sin. And the subsequent judgment and wrath that needs to take place to pay for sin, that death is the cause of sin, is necessary in order to, to answer people. Because apart from that, it doesn't make sense. If we live in a world where there are several ways to God, and one of them is just you know being 51% good, and the other one is God has to kill His own son, obviously there's some serious mm. <laughs> discrepancy between the weight of those two things. And undergirding those two opposing views is it, one is that God isn't that that God's holiness isn't really a factor, and therefore His wrath and His judgment aren't much of a factor. Where over here, we do see God simply cannot uh, cannot dwell with sin. He is holy, and there must be a payment for sin. It's a good. A grace Group question, I think, to to consider how is it that we talk about these difficult, more, uh, I guess, may, maybe in some way controversial, I don't know if that's the right word, aspects of Christianity, God's wrath and judgment, God's holiness, um, sin, how do we engage questions ab- uh, about that in the world in a way that um, is both true to Scripture Um, but also where we can talk with people about that. So this passage, in the darkness, we see forsakenness. And and we know in upcoming weeks that we're going to see the passages about Jesus' burial and resurrection and the great hope that we have in that. But even in this passage, we see hope. But it's hope shrouded in darkness, and that's the second point in your outline. There's hope. Okay? There's hope. Jesus was the founder and perfecter of our faith, and he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Last week, uh, we heard from Rob Price that... uh, so much of what's going on in Mark maps on to Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 starts with that verse, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's the verse Mark clearly wants us to camp on. He doesn't give us the rest of the Psalm here. However, that Psalm does build, and it builds towards a recognition of God's glory and God's provision for his people. And we start to see glimpses of that. Glimpses of that. But this glimpse comes in the context of a cry and two miracles. Jesus cries aloud. And because he's not using words we can understand, we don't know the quality or the sound of that cry but it was a loud voice, and he gave up his spirit. And so there's some discussion. What did this cry mean? Um, generally speaking, people don't think it's a cry of pure anguish, uh, at least in the physical sense. But it's a cry of maybe some, something stronger. Because crucifixion, of course, it was a slow death by wearing someone down and ultimate asphyxiation. Some say, so it's a cry of strength. Some say a cry of victory. I want to look at what happens after the cry, though, what that cry triggers. It it triggers two things. One, it's the tearing of the curtain in the temple. And two, the centurion's confession of faith. Now, both of these images point to hope in the darkness. First, let's take the tearing of the curtain in the temple. This is highly significant. The curtain would have been a very thick, ornate, giant curtain, one that you couldn't just tear into, one that wouldn't just wear out and happen to tear into. This would be uh, clearly something miraculous happening. Now, it could have been one of two 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 curtains. Uh, Passages like Hebrews 10 would point us to the inner curtain separating the uh, inner room from the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelled, that room where only the high priest sinless could go in and atone for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have great confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that opened up for us through a curtain, that is His flesh. So it seems like uh, in, in the author of Hebrews is pointing back to this image of uh, the way being opened up for us. The other possibility is there's an outer temple that would be more, uh, an outer curtain that would be more public. It would separate the kind of public places from the p- private places. And, if, and it was a much larger curtain. And if that were to tear in two, people would know immediately that that had happened. Um, and, and maybe word could get back to Golgotha what just happened. That's that's a possibility. Now, whichever curtain it was, uh, two things are clear. This is m- miraculous. It's not accidental. Um, and these wouldn't be like IKEA curtains, right? That you could just tear because they're they're meant to wear out or something. Um, th- they. Uh, and, and, and these even even the 1980s Christian ministry group, the power team, these hulking figures who could tear phone books apart in the name of the Lord, they couldn't even ever break these curtains, okay so and this happened spontaneously, uh, so it's miraculous, and whichever curtain it was, it points to something, it points to the end of the sacrificial system, because why? Because Jesus has fulfilled once and for all God's law. He even prophesied that the temple would be destroyed in Mark. So this is the first fruits of that destruction. What we know looking back now happened in AD 70. And Mark wants us to know that. And we know that Mark doesn't just throw in extra details, you know, for for fun. He really he wants us to to know that this happened. And so at this cry, we have this fulfilling of God's law. The second miracle is that a centurion, a soldier, makes a claim that Jesus is son of is the Son of God. Now, a centurion would be a soldier over a hundred other soldiers. He's on post here. He's a Roman of Romans. If he's risen to the rank of centurion, he's bought into the cultural superiority of Rome. He's stationed at the crucifixions. I think we can assume that this is one of his duties to oversee part of that. He's seen a lot of crucifixions. We don't know his name, but... Immediately hearing this cry, he makes a confession. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus has been called the Son of God only one more time in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. At Jesus' baptism, and a voice, of, uh, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with whom I, will, I am well pleased. Wow, consider the contrast there. The heavens are torn open and God says, you are my son. The heavens are shrouded in darkness and an oppressor says, this is God's son. And in both cases, what we we see in the first case visually, the Holy Spirit descending. And what we know is uh, something that has to happen to come to faith, that the Holy Spirit is involved we see the Spirit's work and even God's promise that uh, all the peoples, uh, uh, that there would be a way, not just Abraham's offspring, but all the peoples, there would be a way for them to be saved from wrath. This is reminiscent of another time when people were saved from wrath. The ninth plague uh, of the, before the Exodus, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. And then what happened after the plague of darkness? The Passover, where God told told his people, take a spotless lamb, sacrifice them, and place the blood over the door uh, frame, and the judgment of God will pass over your home, and your first sons won't die. Well, here, after another plague of darkness, from the sixth to ninth hour, we see that this time the spotless lamb happens to be the first son and that his sacrifice is great enough that not just the sons of the chosen people, but the sons and daughters of all people who will call on the name of the Lord can be spared and saved. That first Passover points to this Passover. And just like there was hope In the darkness at the first Passover, there was hope in darkness here. This is the focal point of history, where God's judgment and wrath are poured out on His own Son. That the wayward and estranged children of God could be brought close. Back in Psalm 22, verse 23 says this, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God has not despised the the abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. We are the afflicted. We are afflicted with sin. Only because of God's Work through Jesus' uh, atoning sacrifice. Uh, can that affliction be removed from us? We have a tendency to minimize the affliction, um, but it, it leads to death. We have a tendency to justify it as not that bad, but Jesus on the cross is a picture in the darkness, that sin really is that bad. As application, we need to acknowledge the destructiveness of sin. We need to acknowledge that God's judgment and wrath um, are, are, are things that, uh, that we should be able to understand. In fact, if, if you have been sinned against deeply, Or if you think of the sin in the world, I know those of you who have been, there are things that some of you have been through that I hope you would want God to eventually judge that, that it would be uh, paid for. And we learn through Jesus that any sin can be paid for. And so we get to participate in the preaching of the gospel, the good news. Now, that, the word gospel is kind of strange these days, right? It, it's, it's one of those words we say so much that we don't know what the meaning is. And even when we go to the Middle English meaning, God's spell, it even seems stranger, right? So we have to go back to the word evangelion. Um, the Greek word good and, you know, the Greek uh, prefix you and uh, angelion, sounds like angel, means messenger, right? The good message. Without the judgment and wrath of God, the message isn't that good. It's just a message, right? It's, 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 it could be any old message. So we need to camp on that and recognize that uh, the good news of Jesus uh, is good because it, it, it shows us what we're saved from, the very judgment and wrath of God. God hates sin and he will judge it, all of it. Again, for grace group homework, I think a good place to camp would be, how do we better understand and communicate God's holiness, wrath, and judgment in light of the cross? Jesus cried to the Lord. It was a cry of anguish, it was a cry of strength, but it was a cry on behalf of those who because of sin were rejected by God. And through His work, through repentance and belief in the gospel, we are adopted in and not forsaken. And This is good news. So let us be God's church and do God's work by proclaiming it and in word and deed to those who are still far off. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this day, Father, that You've called us together to be Your church. We pray, Lord, that you would apply your word to our hearts as we move forward into our day and out into your world to be ambassadors of this great gospel. Give us wisdom, give us strength as we seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.